Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Each year, hikers are drawn to the Appalachian Trail. The more than 2,000-mile trail stretches from Georgia to Maine, and thousands attempt to through-hike or trek the entire trail. But the Appalachian Trail Conservancy says only one in four succeed. Most of us have hiked sections of it, including in the glorious White Mountains in New Hampshire. But how many of you know the story behind the Appalachian Trail? Today, author Phil Denieri joins us to talk about his new book, The Appalachian Trail, a biography. Coming up, we hear from a thru-hiker on the AT now, and we talk to the volunteers who make the trail passable for so many. And we want to hear from you. What's your AT story? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Philip Denieri is joining us on Zoom. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I was asking listeners for their AT story. So tell us yours. You write about it in, in the book about when you attempted to hike sections of it. How was that first day? Um, well, I've hiked uh, short sections of the trail in each of the 14 states that it passes through, but I've never been or or pretended to be a long distance hiker or, or certainly have not attempted a through hike. Um, so I've spent a lot of time on the trail um, in, in the different kinds of places that it goes to, but um, the book is a history of the trail. And so to be honest, I spent more time in library archives than I did uh, out on the trail itself. Um, one cool thing about doing the research is that the libraries and the universities where these different papers are tend to be not far from the trail. So a research trip would involve, you know, a couple of days leafing through papers, um, but then always also a chance to get out on, on the trail in one place or another. Now, didn't you say you got lost on your first day as you're writing this book and you were hiking sections of it? I, 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 I did not get <laughs> lost on the um, the first day that I was out, um, it's, uh, I did, I did wander off the trail one day, um, uh, (laughs) descending Mount Liberty in New Hampshire. And the thing about the AT is that the areas that it goes through, it frequently isn't the only trail. And, um, and that's a good thing. Um, but it means that you do, you know, the trail is well marked. It's, it's iconic white blazes are, you know, at regular intervals. But if you're not paying attention, you can sort of find yourself off on a side trail that you didn't realize and you have to backtrack a little bit. So talk us through some of that early history of the Appalachian Trail, this idea of accessibility in a, in a heavily populated part of our country, Philip. Yeah, the the rationale for the trail was that it would be it would provide access to a natural setting to the vast swaths of population in Boston and Hartford and New York and Philadelphia and all the way down to Atlanta. Uh, so the the idea behind it was we've got this mountain ridge line that is not too far by train at first, although pretty soon by car 
from these major population settlements. And therefore, why don't we try to um, create uh, uh, an environment along the ridgeline that people can come and visit and learn from? So the fact that the trail is so close to so many people both is why it was built in the first place. The person who first articulated an idea for an AT uh, was a man named Benton Mackay. Um, at the same time, it was built with volunteer labor. It required lots of people to take these weekend trips to do the work, and you could only have that happen if the trail was relatively close to these large population centers. So the connection between the trail and, and the urban has always been uh, very close. You mentioned Benton Mackay. He was actually born in Stamford, Connecticut. So tell us a little bit about him and how he got involved in this idea. He was born in Stamford. He was raised mostly in New York. His family had a small cottage in Shirley Center, Massachusetts, where he spent a lot of time as a child. Um, he grew up to become one of the very first foresters. He was in the very first class at the Harvard School of Forestry and, and helped to establish it not long after he finished there. So he had a professional lifelong interest in the forest and the wise management of the forest. But at the same time, he was a social thinker and a social agitator. And the more his professional career went on, the more he tried to marry what he knew of the natural world and the forests to a vision of making life better for people in cities, in metropolitan areas. Um, so he articulated a, a, a philosophy, a theory of regional planning, which was all about planning the backwoods and the hinterland at the same time and in concert with the urban areas. And his idea for the AT was that it would be a, a long trail that would anchor protected areas around it and that would serve as this uh, natural reserve that folks in urban areas could get to. It also would help uh, uh, keep out and prevent the bleeding outward, the sprawl of uh, metropolitan America. Now, how did he get buy-in? Because I know early on in your book, you talk about, and I just want to quote here, entering the wilderness was not just an unusual thing to do in early America. Uh, it was seen as mortally suspect as well. Popular thinking held the farther away people traveled from Christian civilization, the more they opened their inner selves to the heathen nature of the dark woods. So talk us through, um, again, how this idea of going back to nature evolved in our country. Yeah, so uh, that, by the way, comes from the work of uh, a historian named Roderick Nash, who wrote a classic book, uh, Wilderness and the American Mind, which I highly recommend. Um, and what happened was, if that was the way that uh, early European Americans thought of the woods, it was this dangerous place, it was this place where your, your morals were suspect. By the time you get to the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, American society is much more comfortable, it's industrialized, there's a growing middle class that's living in cities and early suburbs. So what the backwoods had been to earlier generations, it no longer was. It suddenly was this source of recreation and authenticity. There was a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in this, precisely because we could get out there uh, in a, a relatively safe way. Um, so by the time the proposal for the AT is made in 1921, um, uh, 
there's this burgeoning recreational movement that's climbing mountains and hiking and going to the woods. What happened was Mackay proposed the trail as the center point of this big social reform initiative. Uh, the title of his article was An Appalachian Trail, A Project in Regional Planning. Very quickly, the hiking enthusiasts who already existed said, you know what? We love the trail idea. We can kind of do without the philosophy. And they really jumped on board. Uh, one individual in particular named Myron Avery um, uh, to, to lead the work to get the trail marked and cleared and built. So you only get the AT because these early ways of thinking about the backwoods shift to this more modern, um, more comfortable, frankly, middle-class view of, of the outdoors. And talk more about how they got buy-in from these individual states, from Georgia to Maine. Yeah, that... Um, so Avery, uh, who led the building effort in the 1930s and, and all the way through the early 1950s, he was a uh, he was a bulldog, <laughs> and he uh, he was I would say we would talk about him nowadays as being compulsively dedicated to getting this trail built. So he, uh, working with folks in, in the uh, Appalachian Trail organization, was constantly writing letters and traveling to the different states up, up and down the route that the trail goes, organizing these local clubs and maintaining contact with the national parks and the national forests, with state governments as necessary. Back then, a lot of places that the trail ran were through privately owned property. A lot, you know, timber companies would own huge parcels, thousands and thousands of acres. And on a handshake agreement, you could get uh, an agreement to run the trail through. Um, Post World War II, things look a lot different. Land is getting developed, and it requires the intervention eventually of the federal government to create a protected trail corridor. You're hearing Philip Denieri here on Where We Live. He's written the book, The Appalachian Trail, a biography, as we learn about particular figures in history who helped create the AT. Now, if you've hiked the AT, if you have a question about the Appalachian Trail, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So we've heard about uh, two individuals, Benton Mackay and Myron Avery. I wanted to take a call now from someone who who has hiked the AT and also works uh, to help others uh, hike this trail. Uh, Silver's joining us. Can you hear us, Silver? Good afternoon. Good morning, Lucy. Can you hear me? I'm. Uh, hopefully I have a little bit of cell phone coverage here on top of Bear Mountain. Very nice. So I, I called you Silver. So that is that your trail name? <laughs> it is. But after a couple of years of through hiking, I'd say there's more people who know me as Silver than who know me by my given name. So uh, Silver works. And Silver, tell us you're the Ridge Runner Coordinator for Southern New England on the AT. So what does that mean? I'm an employee of the uh, Appalachian Mountain Club, as overseen by the Connecticut chapter of the AT and the Mass chapter. My goal and the goal of all Ridge Runners is to be professional hikers who act as resources to the trail and to all kinds of trail users. That's everyone uh, from people who are out walking their dog to people who are doing sections to people who are through hiking the AT to even the crazy people who are doing the International Appalachian Trail or other kind of adventures. I'm trying to hear to, to just be a resource, answer questions, do trail maintenance, and tell people when they're lost and uh, tell the through hikers where the best cinnamon buns are. 
<laughs> well, that's important. Now, what have you, I, I've mentioned that you've hiked the AT, and so have you done a through hike? And what was it that drew you to the AT, Silver? I am a through hiker. I, uh, the Appalachian Trail was my first through hike, class of 2018 represent. And I think I chose the AT more than anything else because it's, uh, as you were saying, it's, it's kind of the, it's the middle class trail. You can jump on and off the AT in one of a hundred points from a dozen major cities and population centers. And while it's certainly difficult and you have to know what you're doing, uh, it's also, it doesn't require some of the incredible long-distance planning or gear that something like the Pacific Crest Trail or Tiararoa does. And so it's a, a lot more accessible in its way. It was my first time ever hiking, my first time ever spending the night in a tent, and uh, it taught me how to be a thru-hiker. I'll always love the AT for that. Wow, so your first time thru-hiking was the first time you were in a tent, Silver? Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure I'd recommend that part of it. No. <laughs> uh, thru-hiker lingo, we call him zero to hero. <laughs> uh, well, we're glad you were successful. It, it, thank you. It's uh, the trail teaches you how to hike it. If you go slow, you pay attention, and you ask a lot of questions, and you drink more water than you think you should, it'll teach you how to hike it, and you'll make it to Katahdin. <laughs> well, Silver, thank you for joining us just for a few minutes. Be careful up there on Bear Mountain. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Again, we're talking about the Appalachian Trail here on Where We Live. We'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677. Andrea shared a beautiful picture on Twitter. She she says she's hiked many parts of it. One of the most stunning parts, the summit of Mount Greylock, I believe that's in Massachusetts. Also, Greg on Twitter, he's uh, hiked Mount Monadnock and and Cardigan in New Hampshire. Uh, That's something I know our family would love to do as well. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we Learn more about the history of the trail with author Philip Denieri. Coming up after the break, we talk to a through hiker attempting to hike the entire more than 2,000 mile AT. Back with you in a little bit. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Have you hiked the Appalachian tra- Trail? Tell us what drew you to the AT at 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My guest today is Philip Denieri. He's written a new book, The Appalachian Trail, a biography, as we're learning about particular figures in the history of this 2,000, more than 2,000-mile trail. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Jillian Loftus. She's a neonatal nurse from North Carolina, and she's actually through hiking the AT this year. Jillian, welcome to the show, and where are you calling from? Hey, Lucy, thanks for having me. I am calling from the Trail of Hope Hiker Hostel. Um, When I'm on trail, I'm about two miles short of the halfway point. (laughs) Nice, and so when did you decide that you wanted to through hike or do the entire AT? So I grew up camping and hiking and backpacking. Um, So I've known about the Appalachian Trail for a while, maybe since I was 11 or 12. Um, And it was always something that interested me. Um, And then I, when I was in nursing school, I decided, hey, you know, I could actually save up the money and, you know, take this on and do and do the through hike. So I worked as a nurse for a few years, um, saved up my money. And here I am living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're a nurse and we're living in this pandemic. Uh, What was that like (laughs) for you uh, to work during the pandemic and now to have some time uh, to yourself in in the wilderness? Yeah, it was working in the pandemic. I, I would say I was I'm grateful to have had you know, been able to work and been able to have some face-to-face time with colleagues and, you know, not have to face working from home and staying home constantly. Of course, there was always this, you know, underlying risk of being in the hospital, but um, fortunately we came through without, you know, any issues. And I think especially in the NICU setting, we're very lucky in terms of, you know, staffing and, um, you know, the, the kind of risk that we were facing. Um, and honestly, but it has been really nice to a huge change up from, you know, going to the hospital three times a week to being outside every day and, and hiking a lot of miles. You know, some people listening who haven't hiked the Appalachian Trail may think it's primarily a, maybe a solo experience, but what is it like each day for you, Jillian? Oh, it is so social. I see so <laughs> many people on trail every day. Um, there are millions of people who come on the Appalachian Trail every year. Through hikers are a small portion of it, um, usually about 4,000 people. I think this year it's closer to six because people wanted to get out of, you know, get out of their homes. And um, there are many people who were not able to complete their through hikes last year who are trying again. So I see a lot of people every day. You, you camp with, around people, you know, if you want. You can also find the solitude if you if you are looking for it. You know, you can hike by yourself. You can camp in what we call stealth sites. So not around shelters, but kind of just in another part of the woods where it looks like you can set up a tent or a hammock. Mm-hmm. 
So, Jillian, stay with us. I wanted to get back to Philip Denieri, who's written this biography of the Appalachian Trail. So you talk about some of the more prominent thru-hikers, or at least stories that we now know today of people who attempted to hike the entire trail. Can you talk about Schaefer and Gatewood? Sure. Um, uh, Earl Schaefer is widely credited as being the first thru-hiker. He was a very... Um, uh, upset individual in the years right after World War II. He had been drafted into the army um, and he was trying to get his life back together. And he knew that the AT had been built. He knew that nobody had ever hiked the length of it in a single trip in, you know, in one season. And he resolved to do that as a way of sort of getting his life in order and uh, you could say finding who he was uh, as an adult. So he undertook that and he did it uh, in 1948. At the time, it was not uh, not a lot of attention was paid to it. The folks who built and and organized and uh, you know maintained the AT in those days had no intention of people using it as a through hiking venue. Um, they didn't celebrate it all that much. Um, but to Schaefer, it meant a lot. He was a great resource to what was then called the Appalachian Trail Conference, now the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, um, because because he walked the whole length of it, he could report on here are the trail conditions that I noticed. And so he became a real resource to the ATC, which they welcomed. Um, but it wasn't until the late 1960s, early 1970s that um, through hiking became much more popular. And so this, this origin story around the first through hike and Earl Schaefer took on greater prominence. Um, in the early 1950s, an Ohio grandmother um, who had led a very difficult life to that point uh, heard about the AT uh, and she thought that she had a lot of freedom. Her kids were grown now. She was out of a fiercely, violently abusive marriage. Um, and she said, well, I want to walk on that thing and I want to walk the whole length. Uh, and her name was Emma Gatewood. She became popularly known as Grandma Gatewood. Um, and uh, so she took uh, a very different kind of through hike. Uh, she was nearer to the end of her life than the beginning of her adulthood. She uh, had she she wasn't walking under sort of a, a, a storyline for herself of I'm this loner off in the woods. She made a lot of use of people nearby the trail. She would, you know, uh, sleep on their farm properties. She would, you know, she she hiked in 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 concert with the world around her as opposed to, you know, trying to stay overly isolated. Um, so those are just two of the now thousands of stories, a different story for every individual, how they came to it, what their motivation was, what they got out of it. There's a, you know, you could write and, and folks have, you know, many volumes and chapters just about through hiking culture and history. Um, but as Jillian mentioned, the actual usage of the AT by through hikers is a small percentage of the people who use it. It's It was built and is now protected uh, by the National Park Service for everybody. And it's as much a place for a day hike or, you know, a couple of nights as it is for this this big, long uh, uh, through hike excursion. I want to try to fit in a quick call, Kelly in Old Saybrook. Uh, Kelly, what brought you and your mom to the AT? Hi, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. 
wonderful. We actually were both breast cancer survivors, and I was married at the time. My ex knew that that would be um, a shared dream for my mom and I, and also a way for me to get back to health and uh, have something to kind of work towards through my year of treatment. So my mom and I and my ex-husband at the time, we took six months off of work and lived that dream that I had thought I would not be able to do until I was retired. So it was it was wonderful. It was a dream come true. And uh, both my mom and I beat the cancer and have lots of stories to tell. Oh, I love hearing that, uh, Kelly. And I'm curious, did you go from Maine to Georgia or Georgia to Maine? And when you were finally done, how did you feel? We were a northbounder, so we started in Georgia, took exactly six months. We um, summited on breast cancer awareness day one, October 1st. And how did we feel? Um, Well, it's six months of really hard work. And oddly, the last day of hiking, Mount Katahdin, was absolutely the hardest day. So we were actually exhausted. Um, It took us a couple of days after we were done to realize we really did it. And 15 years later, we're still looking at each other going, we really did it. We really completed the entire Appalachian Trail. So it's something we'll have um, for the rest of our lives. And I encourage everyone to get out there. Um, Whether you're a through hiker or you do section hiking, I actually have a lot of respect for section hikers because many of them love the trail and love hiking even more than through hikers who, you know, manage to get six months off. Section hikers spend sometimes 20, 30, 40 years working on segments and finally finish. I think that would be a great show as well, people who have done the long haul and spent their whole lives completing the trail. Well, thank you, Kelly, for calling in and so glad to hear that you also both beat cancer. We really appreciate hearing from you today on the show. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jillian, I wanted to go back to you because I think you said you're at the halfway point. And so tell us, when do you expect to finish uh, the AT? Um, So I am hoping to finish in about five months total. So tomorrow will actually be three months exactly that I've been on trail. Um, and, and the first kind of month, I started off pretty slowly doing about eight to, eight to 12 miles a day. So now that I'm kind of have got what we call our trail legs, I can, you know, tolerate hiking, you know, 15 to 20 plus miles. I actually hiked 30 miles yesterday. So trying to um, get get to Katahdin by August 15th or so. Um, of course, I'm going to listen to my body and and go from there. But I would love to be home for my nephew's first birthday, which is at the end of August. Now, we heard from Silver earlier. That's his trail name, a ridge runner in southern New England. What's your trail name, Jillian? Um, I am known as Stork. And that relates to your job? <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about trail culture and what it's been like uh, to be hiking, especially during COVID? Do your miles count? Who are the people that you're encountering? Oh, yeah. So let's see. Life on trail. It's actually so much fun. Um, You've got a lot of like-minded individuals out here of, you know, all ages and backgrounds. I, I think it's so cool that, you know, 
you would never necessarily run into these people in what we call government life. <laughs> um, and you hear great stories. And um, my favorite part of the day is kind of winding down, getting to camp, getting to hear about people's days. Usually I'm hiking alone during the day. Sometimes I'll have a buddy hike with me for a little bit, but I'm a little bit slower than most people. So, so I'm rolling into camp. Everybody's already there. And I get to see, get to hear about how their day was and get to do a lot of laughing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, do my miles count? Um, so actually, <laughs> um, so the Appalachian Trail Conservancy has uh, historically done um, what they call a 2000 miler recognition program, um, which they did put on hold for a little over a year and re they restarted counting the miles on May 11th this year. So I've actually got about 650 miles that don't count um, towards mm. an official through hike. Um, I'm not planning to redo them. I think, you know, I knowing in my heart that I, <laughs> that I completed the trail is going to be enough for me. Well, we can't wait to, he to hear how it all ends up for you, Jillian Loftus. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your AT story, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's Jillian Loftus. She's a neonatal nurse from Greensboro, North Carolina. She's through hiking or attempting to hike the entire Appalachian Trail this year. Also with us on Zoom is Philip Denieri. We're learning about some of the history of the Appalachian Trail. That's the focus of his new book, The Appalachian Trail, a biography. Uh, we're going to continue talking about the AT right after a short break. But now's the time to remind you that this is the last day of Connecticut Public Radio's short one-week pledge drive. If you appreciate the different types of conversations we have here on Where We Live and all of the great programming you hear on the station, please support us. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Hi, my name's Kat Pastor. I'm uh, the technical operator for Where We Live, and I'm here with the beloved John Henry Smith of All Things Considered. I'm not even beloved in my own house. <laughs> Well, um, I don't know about that. Okay, well, we're going to have to ask the fans for feedback then because I'm sure that you will be proven wrong. Ah, uh, shucks. I'm going to blush, though. Come on. Um, it is the end of the fiscal year, and I honestly cannot think of anything more exciting. Um, so we are doing our June pledge drive to uh, ask for listener support so that we can keep bringing you programming such as Where We Live, programming that you love. Um, but we need your support in order to uh, keep this going. Uh, the number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go to wmpr.org slash donate as well. Hey, we get it. We know that you're being inundated with solicitations to separate you from your money. I'm in the same boat as you. I turn down most of the solicitations that I get on Facebook when I'm wishing someone a happy birthday or when... Uh, or over the phone on those uh, on those cold calls, those robo calls that we all can't stand. I get it, all right? But I don't turn down the ones that are near and dear to my heart. And the fact that you're listening right now tells me that public radio might just be near and dear to your heart. We've had so many people during this and, and other pledge drives tell us how indispensable they find our fair and our in-depth news coverage, along with our, our thought-provoking programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, if this describes you, 
Make sure you do your part to help us keep serving you. Call 1-800-584-2788 to donate, or you can go to wnpr.org forward slash donate. Because at the end of the day, hey, it takes money to run an operation like this, and there's no guarantee that tomorrow is coming. There's no guarantee for any of us, but certainly we need your support to keep doing what we're doing. So again, 1-800-584-2788-WNPR.org forward slash donate if you want to do it online. That's right. And, um, you know, this isn't all for us. We also have some thank you gifts that we could give to you um, to kind of thank you for the support that you give us. So one of the gifts uh, this this go around is for $15 a month, you can get a stainless steel pet bowl. We had a pet bowl before, but people didn't like it. So we reworked it. It's a stainless steel pet bowl in the nice uh, Connecticut public blue. It says sit, stay, listen on the front, well, which I feel like is, is good advice for a lot of for for a, a, a for life the, beyond pets. For, for those dogs who speak English. <laughs> right. For those dogs who speak English. Um, but more importantly, uh, a lot of that goes to providing medical care and vaccinations for pets in need through the Connecticut Humane Society, which um, that tugs on my heartstrings. So that that's a that's a big one for me. So that's fifteen dollars a month, and that fifteen dollars a month goes far. Who knew um, that a coworker you know, whose nickname is Cat would be an animal lover? Right, I know. Serendipity. <laughs> Serendipity. Yeah. No, my mom. Uh, every year, I get it. Like cat figurines, cat cat keychains. Wow. All, yeah. I had an aunt when I was growing up who loved frogs, so I get it. There you go. Um, also, for fifteen dollars a month, did you know that it's NPR's fiftieth anniversary? It's not Connecticut Publics yet. We're getting there, but it's not yet. But you can get like a, a kind of like a full NPR 50th anniversary outfit for $15 a month. You can get a T-shirt and a mug with the special NPR 50th anniversary like a uh, design on it, um, which, uh, you know, when you walk into a room with the with the NPR 50th anniversary T-shirt and mug, you're telling people that you're not here for funny business. You're here for facts. You're curious. Well, we're not saying you don't have a joke or two. Sure. I mean, oh, yeah. No. You, you, might, you might be a very funny person, but you know what? You'll also be a very informed person. I, I, I say this all the time, and I, my family is tired of hearing of it. Maybe you all won't be as tired of hearing of it. I just think public radio makes you what I like to call Sherlock Holmes smart. You know how Sherlock Holmes, if I know some of you are young and haven't uh, partaken, but the rest of you. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, you at, he said he knows a little something about horticulture. He knows a little something about uh, about about uh, about gastronomy. He he knows a little something about a lot of things, and and that's the kind of thing that public radio does for you. It keeps you informed about current events. It keeps you informed about things you didn't even know you wanted to know about. Call one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. Go to WNPR.org forward slash donate and thanks. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today on Zoom, Philip Denieri, author of the Appalachian Trail, a biography. Uh, we heard uh, as through hiking became more and more popular, Philip, but you in your book also profile uh, Bill Bryson, who wrote the book that many people have uh, read, A Walk in the Woods. How did that impact people's interest in the Appalachian Trail? There was a huge uh, uh, um, uh, increase in trail usage after the book came out in 1998. You know, the 
what I'm trying to do with my book is show how our understanding of the trail has uh, you know, shifted over the years by profiling these different individuals. And the thing about Bryson's role in that story is in the early years of the trail, you know, right up through the 1960s and 70s, uh, understandably, it was a very serious undertaking. Uh, the, the first proposal to protect a, an Appalachian realm that would, you know, define the fabric of society, these great, great big, huge ambitions. And then later, you know, people trying to get back to some sort of pure nature and reconnect with the world. And then Bill Bryson comes along in the late 90s and writes this book that is uh a humorous recounting of his own experiences and that of his hiking partner. It makes fun of himself. Most of all, it makes fun of, you know, people in general. Um, and so the interesting thing about that to me is that, well, first of all, it was a huge bestseller for months and months. Uh, and to this day, it's the way that many people identify with the trail when they hear about it. They, you know, they mention that book or reading that book. Um, but the other thing is that it, it really was a sign that the AT had become a central part, not just of the American physical landscape, but the cultural landscape, that this kind of goofy book uh, about this great uh, humor writer's time on the trail could, um, you know, could become this, this great big bestseller. Mm -hmm. I should say, not just humor writer. Bill Bryson is a writer of many different stripes and flavors, and that's one of the reasons that he's been so popular. Um, but clearly central to what he's doing is, uh, is a pretty strong talent for, uh, for humorous writing. So in one way, great to raise more awareness about the Appalachian Trail, but how did the diehards feel, the, the volunteers, the people who take uh, the AT very seriously uh, that uh, Bill Bryson's book took off and, and brought a lot of attention uh, to the trail? Yeah, it, it was uh, it, it wasn't great. There were many people in the AT community who felt like Bryson was a brash outsider. Um, he he. he these folks who volunteer, you know, hundreds of hours to help keep the trail clear and maintain it in various ways, or to, uh, you know, bring hikers on trips into the woods, uh, or folks, maybe they're not a member of a club, but they've taken one of these hikes, like your uh, callers have mentioned, that have been, you know, hugely important to their life. And then here's this guy who comes in, uh, uh, bringing almost the pop culture to the AT and bringing the AT into the pop culture. Uh, and there was, you know, there was criticism of him, of um, some of the ways that he uh, profiled people that were um, stereotypical towards Southerners. Um, uh, you know, he, he does have a biting sense of humor. Um, he, the, the framework of the book is his attempted through hike and he did not complete a through hike. And so a lot of folks felt like, you know, you don't get to write a book about through hiking the trail if you didn't actually do it. Um, but um so, yeah, it, there definitely was, you know, some conflict there. But um, I think that, you know, in the over the long haul, uh, the the trail community and Bryson, you know, uh, have gotten along uh, pretty well. Um, when a few years ago, the ATC published this gorgeous coffee table book about the trail, um, Bryson wrote a foreword for the book and um, that described his own experience and how much it had meant to him. Um, and, and you know, it, it showed how much he appreciates the trail as a place that we need to, to value and protect. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned the volunteers of the AT wouldn't continue to be passable uh, for so many without them. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Jeff Glanz, who's a trail maintainer here in Connecticut. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. So first off, thanks for the work that you do. Tell us uh, how you help, uh, again, look at some of the sections in Connecticut and make them passable for so many. Um, so our job basically is to do exactly that, to keep the trail passable. So, you know, removal of fallen trees, you know, cutting back the brush that grows up amazingly fast this time of year. And unfortunately, more and more cleaning up after people. So garbage removal, removal of uh, illegal fire pits and things like that. Um, it's it's uh, a lot of work. So what part of the, the trail are you maintaining? Um, I maintain the section in Connecticut that leaves uh, River Road and goes up over uh, Silver Hill and includes the Silver Hill campsite, which a lot of people remember simply because it's got one of only two porch swings on the AT. <laughs> and so you said that uh, you're picking up a lot of trash and there's illegal fire pits. And so we were talking with Philip about how the AT has become more and more popular, but it sounds like people still need to learn to respect this trail. I, yeah, I think so. Um, there's been a huge increase in use. Just you know, people because of the you know the recent unpleasantness just want to get outdoors and and do stuff. And there's a lot of people that are out hiking that maybe have not had the opportunity to hike with an experienced hiker or with a club or something, and don't really know what outdoor ethics are. And so to them, if they see something like a bear box, they think, well, that looks like a trash container. I'll just leave my stuff here. Oh, wow. Uh, so what could be some advice that you'd give our listeners uh, who many of them may just do sections and about how they should uh, treat this trail? Um, you know, so leave no trace uh, is a great ethic for this. Um, basically, uh, our our goal is to get everybody to try and leave the trail better than they found it. And I understand that you're also part of the Appalachian Mountain Club Connecticut chapter. This is the 100th anniversary of your organization. Uh, how do you feel about us so many uh, using this trail and getting back into the woods? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's, it's, um, it's good for people. Um, it's good, you know, for your mental health and, as well as your physical health. Um, it, it has put quite a strain on um, Connecticut's trail system. So it sounds like you need more volunteers. Uh, yeah, what we really need at this point is more trails. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we thank you for your work and telling us a little bit about what you do, maintain a section of the AT in Connecticut. Have a great weekend, Jeff. Thank you very much. Bye. Uh, Philip, I wanted to get back to you uh, because there, there was a part in your book that really stood out to me when you were in Shenandoah, uh, and you wrote that, like many aspects of the 20th century built environment, outdoor recreation and the parts to accommodate it were created by and for the white middle class. And so I wanted to find out through your research, has the AT community gotten more diverse today? It absolutely has, although I, I should point out that my book really takes the trail through the end of the 1900s, um, and I wouldn't presume to be an authority on, um, on on the present tense. But yes, just from you know being in and around the trail, um, both the National Park Service and the Appalachian Trail Conservancy um, have done a lot to 
recognize the pretty, what I call monochromatic past of America's national parks and the whole the whole ethic of them. I mean, they were really built around a, a presumption, a, built around a user group of folks who had the free time and the means to get in a car and go to the backwoods and had the cultural sensibilities um, and sort of uh, patterns that, you know, that that spoke to as though that was everybody in America. And so you've got this whole park system that's that's built around an automotive culture, a suburban culture that is not within itself as diverse as the entire American population. Um, so uh, that is is changing, um, you know, uh, People from all walks of life are are claiming for themselves their own uses of of the outdoors, and uh, the organizations like the ATC, like the Park Service, and others are increasingly tuning into this monochromatic aspect of their past and doing what they can to diversify the experience of it. But this one night that I was in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, it just seemed like a uniformly white place. It didn't it didn't look like, uh, you know, the the diversity of America. And so I think as much as these environments, whether it's the AT or different national parks, state parks, you know, outdoor life in general, as much as they are uh, intentionally um, and, uh, you know, whether they want to or not diversifying, there's also this historical legacy that, you know, uh, is never entirely behind us. Well, it was really interesting reading your book, Philip uh, Denieri, again, uh, and it's a part of it is on our website, a little section at WMPR.org slash where we live. It's called the Appalachian Trail, a biography. Uh, we just talked about just a few uh, figures, uh, but Philip's done amazing research and really takes us along and takes readers along on the history and legacy of the AT. We really appreciate your time, Philip. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, when I checked out the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, something else I wanted to point out that although hiking the entire Appalachian Trail is a demanding endeavor for a person, the AT Conservancy says hikers with a variety of disabilities have successfully completed the entire AT. These include several blind hikers, an above-the-knee amputee, hikers with diabetes, and organ transplantees. Uh, the AT is out there for all of us to enjoy, and we hope that you check out some sections of it uh, this weekend here in Connecticut. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Now, before you start the weekend, we want you to know it's the last day of our short one-week pledge drive. If you appreciate these kinds of conversations, learning about our state, hearing from people all around Connecticut, please support where we live and the great programming you hear on this radio station. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org forward slash donate. This is Kat Pastor coming back at you with John Henry Smith. You just finished listening to Where We Live and uh, you odds are you really enjoyed the show. So the thing about that show is that it does take money to uh, put over the air. Uh, the way that we that we as a station get support is through listener support. We have very little um, support from like ad revenue. That's why you're not just blown away, away by commercials every two seconds. Um, and uh, we have uh, we have some corporate support, but mainly uh, we are beholden to you, the listener. We are not beholden to the man, and we rely on your support to keep shows like where we live 
on the air. And uh, the way to do that is by calling 1-800-584-2788 or going to WMPR.org forward slash donate. And, you know, Kat, in my work experience so far, I mean, I've only worked for before this station, I've only worked for uh, places that were ad supported. And I've got to tell you how liberating it has been to, to work in a place where this didn't happen at every place I've worked at, but I, I won't name names, but it's, it's happened before where someone comes to me and says, well, you know, that, you know, that company is an advertiser and, hey, we want to tread lightly. We've, I've never had anyone tap me on the shoulder and say, don't talk about this, don't do this because someone or some company out there is an advertiser. And that helps us bring you the truth. That helps us serve you in, in a very pure and complete way. So that's our mission here at Connecticut Public Radio. And, and we're so appreciative to all of you out there listening uh, for appreciating what we bring you. Now, let, let's talk donations. We love getting big donations here at Connecticut Public Radio. Someone out there right now is willing to write us a check for one or $2,000 or more. You know, of course, hey, that ensures the success of this fun drive for this hour. But I know most of you don't have that kind of scratch to spare all at once. No worries. If every one of you out there who loves and regularly listens to our offerings on Connecticut Public Radio regularly sends us what you can afford, $10, $20, $50, $100, or some other, some other combination of dollars I didn't mention, you've done your part. And we can keep doing our part to bring you the work that you enjoy and rely on to get a firmer understanding of this often really a topsy-turvy world we live in. Call 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org forward slash donate. That's right. And uh, if you've seen the growth that we've had in the past year, you know that your donation will go very far. So again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org forward slash donate. And thank you so much. <laughs> 